St. Warburg's Derby. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here. I'm glad I wasn't on my own. Um, we're in Joshua this morning, the book of Joshua. Um, uh, it should appear on the screens in a minute if you want to follow it on your phones or tablets or whatever. Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through to 25. And uh, I'm reading the NIV. This is what we read. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry, out, carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called all the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord. And blowing their trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. Do you get the impression here? So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you'll not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young man who'd done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she had hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. 
and she lives among the Israelites to this day. That's the story. That's the incredible, crazy obedience of Joshua. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, uh, some of you will remember, some of you may not remember, and some of you will have never heard of this, but back in the 80s there was a film called The Karate Kid. A few smiles, a few nods going on. The Karate Kid, I think there's been a remake in 2010. It's obviously not as good as the original. Um, and, and in this film, a, a young teenage boy wants to be a karate master. So he goes to a, a very senior, aged karate uh, master and, and asked to, to be taken on. And the, the, guy, the old man says yes. And on his first day, all he gets to do is uh, sand the floor, paint the fence, and wax this man's car putting the wax on, putting the wax off. And at the end of the day, he's absolutely demoralized and distraught and fed up, and he throws the towel in and says he's leaving after one day of training. And the master just pulls him back just before he runs off uh, and says, just tell me what you were doing. Just, just sand the floor again and just do the wax off and wax on again for me. And as this kid reluctantly does those actions again, the master throws a punch, and the, this boy realizes he can do the protection. He is a karate master. So the master, as much as he looked old and wrinkly and he couldn't do anything, the master knew what he was doing all along. See, Joshua has this wild thing that God says to him to do. Imagine being in the military planning meeting for that. Okay, so, uh, you know, the generals would, would, would have their plans come in. And then Joshua would say, actually, I, I, I've got a better one. Let's march around it once a day, blow some trumpets, and then on the Sabbath or the seventh day, let's do it seven times, and as well as trumpets, we'll shout. That'll do it, won't it? That'll do it. They don't call me Joshua, the leader of Israel, for nothing, you know, guys. I mean, imagine that meeting. And some of it, the, the, the sort of repetitive nature of some of these Old Testament narratives, are, they're well written because actually the repetitiveness helps us realize, oh yeah, they did this every day. They actually walked around carrying the ark. They had to pick it up. They had to plan it. They had to get the foreguard and the rearguard. They actually did this every day. So it helps us know what they went through. But guess what, guys? It worked. It actually worked. See, the master knew what he was doing all along. Hi. It was irrational. It was illogical. It was impossible. Uh, and it was completely impractical. There'd have been a hundred better ways to do it. But just like wax on and wax off, the master knows what he's up to. Our perspective is so limited and we're so in what's in front of us and, and in our eyes. So this morning we're thinking about crazy obedience. And Jericho is possibly one of the craziest we could get in the Bible, isn't it? God often asks us to do things that seem totally absurd. And there may be a hundred or more reasons not to do it. But, you know, following God's plan is the best thing we could do. Period. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear that. Following God's plan is the best thing that we can do as human beings. And I'm going to prove it to you. So obey is uh, a word that is out of fashion, isn't it? Even in Christian circles today. It's not a word we use a lot. It's not a word we understand because 
We are the kings of our own destiny and queens of our own lives, aren't we? No one obeys in the 21st century postmodern culture, do we? No one tells us what to do. We're the boss. So our cultures clash with this word obey. But it's an incredibly important word. In Jesus' parable, uh, after the end of his epoch-changing sermon on the mount, where he redefines what it is to be God and to be spiritual, uh, he, he tells the parable of the building on the sand and on the rock, doesn't he? And of course, the, the purpose of that parable is that he says, you know, this is how you'll be if you obey my commands, if you do what I say. So it's absolutely crucial to following God. Uh, and the wonderful Bible is full of, of incredible stories of people, ordinary people, doing crazily obedient stuff. Th- that's it. We could go through a list from Abraham with Isaac and Moses and the rock and Daniel and the lion's dead and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and uh, the fiery furnace. We could look at David, his life with Goliath. We could look at Ruth and her devotion to Naomi. We could look at Esther uh, and that perfect timing of her stepping out with the king. We could look at Mary and Joseph. We could look at Peter getting out of the boat. We could, we could look at Ananias healing Saul, uh, this violent persecutor of the church. We, we could look at story after story and see how the Bible is it's just this incredible library of crazy obedience. It is crazy, but it achieves more than we could possibly imagine or plan. And it's so powerful. It's God's chosen way to get things done. So I want to briefly unpack a few things for you this morning. Firstly, that crazy obedience flows from an encounter with the eternal one. Crazy obedience flows from an encounter with the eternal one. So uh, we started, as you do, with Joshua chapter 6, but I just want to nip back to the end of chapter 5 so we get the context of this. So chapter 5, verse 13 says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him, as you do, and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Wouldn't it have been great to have delivered that line? Um, Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That's the context of chapter 6. That's where Joshua gets his command out of an encounter with the living God. And whenever you hear the angel of the Lord, often in the narratives, it it switches between the angel said and God said, because the angel speaks the word of the Lord, and the angel brings the presence of the Lord. You meet an angel of the Lord, you meet the presence of God. So uh, Jericho, crazy plan, comes from God. It comes from this encounter. Um, And all great things come from encounter. So... uh, Obedience can't be whipped up. And it shouldn't really be done just out of thin air. You you have to have something to obey. And you have to know where God's leading. And that comes through meeting him. That's why we gather. That's why we worship and pray together. So that we can experience his 
life-changing presence. That's what we pray for week in, week out, that we as a people of God encounter God. And we all have moments with God, don't we? Uh, If you haven't, keep praying, keep seeking, you will. A hungry heart God always, always meets. Uh, And one of my key encounters was at New Wine, another camping Christian fest, just like Focus. Um, And they were praying for pastors, and, and I was on the floor for about 45 minutes, crying away as you do. And in that amazing healing moment for me, I heard God say, towards the end, he said, now, now go back and tell people what I tell you. And for me, that's, that's been such a pivotal driving force for exercising the prophetic and, and trying to pass on what God's saying. Where did it come from? Shepton Mallet. <laughs> A campsite. It came from encountering God. So crazy obedience has a start, and I would say it's always encountering God. But secondly, flowing out of that, crazy obedience also flows from being crazily loved. Crazily loved. God is incredible in his pursuit of us as human beings. You wouldn't be here this morning but for the love of God. And I think we get lost in so many other things when we need to get lost in his love. If we try to obey out of duty, out of rules, out of the fact that there's a command, we can get lost and we call that law. We call it religion. And it's the complete opposite to the gospel of grace that Jesus came. Great theologian of the 4th century, Augustine, great hero of the Christian history, said, uh, forgive the patriarchal um, stance of it. Wicked men obey from fear, good men from love. So wicked people obey from fear, good people from love. It's the love of God that motivates us to do what he tells us. Chris Hodges says in his book, Fresh Air, I'd love to, it's a couple of sentences long, but it just captures it really well. Here's the real secret, he says. You can fulfill the commands of the Bible better by falling in love with God than by trying to obey him. It's not that your obedience isn't significant or relevant. It's simply not the center of the wheel. No, the hub of your life is your relationship with God, your behavior, And a sacrifice and obedience radiate like spokes from the center of your life and allow you to roll forward. He's got it, hasn't it? The center of the wheel is God's love for us and our returning love for him. Our obedience comes from that. You can't put obedience at the beginning. You can't say, I've got a badge. Look, I've done this and that and I've obeyed. It doesn't work like that. It's love. It's the love of God. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel says to King Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. You know, sacrificial life is good. Notice it's a comparative language. Sacrifice isn't wrong, but obedience uh, is better. Alan de Jaeger said, the person who cannot obey God cannot say they love or trust their master. If God knows best, then how dare we interfere with his will? So you can't whip it up. First, dwell on his love for you. You are the apple of his eye. As we so often say, when he hung on the cross, he thought of you. Today, hear him whisper your name. He became a human, a poor, 
Jewish man and subjected himself to beatings and whippings for you. And if you were the only person in the universe, he'd have still done it. It's great to know that God is love and he died to save the whole world generically. It's another thing, isn't it, to realize the specificity that he loves you, your name. Not just some general thing, though that's true. It's concrete for you, his grace for you. So my prayer is that that will capture you today, that his love for you will motivate you to follow him and do what he says, do what he lays on your heart. Thirdly, crazy obedience flows from a faith in El El Shaddai, the Hebrew word, God Almighty. Let's think about that for just a minute. Why did Joshua do what God asked? Because he was Moses' understudy. He'd seen the miracles that God had done through Moses. He'd hung out in the tent of meeting. Often when Moses left, we're told that Joshua stayed in the presence of God. He knew that life was much better the quicker you get in on God's plan. And that actually, if you didn't, it would go quite badly for you. And in that culture and time in history, going bad for you means being annihilated by a foreign army. You know, we we mess up and we might vote a different party into power. We've still got democratic freedom and we've still got the NHS. Do you know what I mean? You know, you, you mess up in that day, you're annihilated, killed. Your descendants, your line, wiped out, gone. So he knew this is God Almighty that's got this plan. And if he says it's going to work, it's going to work. We should trust him. We can obey obey seemingly stupid things because of an unshakable trust in the one who is outside of time, who is running the universe. Jim Elliott says this, rest in this. It's his business to lead, command, impel, send, call, or whatever you want to call it. It is your business to obey, follow, move, respond, or what have you. So really, it's crazy not to obey, isn't it? If you flip it that way, what are we doing disobeying what God wants for us? I mean, we, we fall for the lie that we can run the universe better, don't we? Essentially, the reason we don't do what God says is, I might not have enough money to do this or that, or I might be late, or... Um, they might laugh at me. And essentially, we're putting ourselves on the throne of the universe, saying, we know what's best. We can orchestrate other people's actions and behaviors better. And that's the rub of it, isn't it? If we just wake up to the fact, this is God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the creator of the universe, the Lord of the lords, the King of kings, he probably knows what he's talking about. The master knows, doesn't he? Anyone seen the, 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 the film Infinity Wars? Oh, quite, more shakes that way than that way. But there's a few. So Infinity Wars, the latest Marvel film to come out. Uh, loads of superheroes all in one film. And uh, so, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it now, you're not a big fan, it won't work. It won't matter, will it? Right? So basically, the baddie gets all the power in the universe. And loads of people die. That's the film. Uh, uh, Nicely set up for a a sequel. It's definitely a two-parter. 
Uh, so the baddie gets all the power. Now, in, there's a scene that I was thinking about afterwards. Benedict Cumberbatch has something like an infinity stone that enables him to time travel. And while they're fighting, he goes off time traveling. And he comes back and lets the baddie get the, the time traveling stone. Sounds a bit stupid. But um, the, he says a line in it which has stayed with me and I think is the key to the second film. And he says, uh, I've seen, I've just been into the future and I've checked out a million different futures and this is the only one where we win, where we give the baddie the stone. This is the only one out of a million where we win. And, you know, I thought that so reminds me of God. We forget eternal means outside of time. God's a time traveler. It doesn't just mean he lives forever. Eternal means you're outside of time. God's a time traveler. He's probably seen a billion different futures, and he's working out the one that's right for you. And he's meshing that into the right future for everyone else in your life as well. We just look at the next month and think we're thinking ahead. He's a thousand steps on the chessboard ahead of you and I. And he loves you. And he will follow you every step of the way. So you just start obeying. Because beneath are the everlasting arms. He's the eternal one. So finally, two little things. Crazy obedience changes you. It changes you because it helps you to die all those little deaths. All those, you know, the biggest problem with the Christian life is we, we surrender our life to Jesus, but then we take it back and we try to rule the show, don't we? Um, so crazy obedience starts with just that little things. Oh, I'll buy the stranger the coffee today. And I'll just tell him that God loves him. And, and that little bit of obedience changes you because a little bit of you gets crucified again. And, and the more you obey in the little things, then the, the bigger things, just God gives you more responsibility. And a bit like chaos theory, it changes you, but it then changes the world around you. You know, chaos theory is that a butterfly flapping its wings in the Amazon can create a hurricane on the other side of the world. You know, you buying a coffee for a stranger out of love can tip the balance in that person's life to turn to God and they may just have an audience with a king, a queen, or a president, or a government on the other side of the world. Tiny bits of obedience change you and change the world. I want to live in a world like that. I want a faith like that. I want a church like that. Let's do it. Let, let's obey the loving God, the El Shaddai, who's got everything in his hands. So it's time to be crazily obedient. Are you ready? What's on your heart? As I've been speaking, has God dropped anything into your life right now? What has he said in the past that's come back to you now? Just bring it to mind. Should we pray and respond?